Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. It's October, and you guessed it, I have another spooky story for you tonight. really think you're going to like this one. Extra creepy. Um, but before we get to the bedtime reading... I just want to profoundly thank uh, all of our new patrons on Patreon. 
which is a site where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. And uh, tonight, I'm going to be continuing to read the backlog of amazing people who uh, donated over the last few weeks when I was away. So, lots of names tonight. So, a big thanks to all of these following brand new patrons. Sonia Thomas, Julie, Art Dewey, Betty Larson, Helen McClay, Naomi Alderman, Maddie Williams, Sandra Robinson, Alina, Brandon Horn, Jas Adam, Amanda, Daniela Hutchings, Ansley Johnston, Amy E. Kemper, Virginia Lane, Janet Cass, Anastasia Lady, Lori Seeger, Craig Morgan, Carolina Bernaca, Jamie W.H., Anne McLaughlin, Nina Harris, Amanda Ellis, Tina Rock, Deborah, Claude Speech, Rochelle Y., Ashley, Nancy Lynn, Charlotte, and Joanne Lenore. Wow, thank you all so, so much for being patrons of the show. It is wild to see that many new patrons. Um, so thank you so much. It's so deeply appreciated. And um, for any who don't know, all of these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on patreon.com slash sleepy radio where you can go and uh, pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. Um, you can donate $5 to get access to the exclusive poetry feed with all kinds of episodes you haven't heard before where I read poetry. But no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, it goes a really long way and I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show. So, thank you, all of you, again. And um, if you listening want to be a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. It is spooky October, everyone, and uh, got a brand new uh, Halloween story for you, one that I've never read before, but it is from the author of the previous story on the Sleepy Podcast, uh, which is uh, Hume Nisbet, and the story I read last week, I really enjoyed it, and I heard from a lot of you that you very much liked it too. Um, it turns out Hume Nisbet has a collection of really, really wonderful, spooky short stories that I can fit into a whole episode. Um, so tonight I'm going to be reading you 
and especially a little spooky slow burn story called The Haunted Station. I really hope you enjoy this or enjoy going to sleep to it. Maybe enjoy getting a little spooked out by it. And again, if these are a little too scary, then just know that we got lots of other episodes for you to go to sleep to. But without further ado, another spooky October reading, The Haunted Station by Hume Nisbet. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The Haunted Station. It looked as if a curse rested upon it, even under that glorious southern morn, which transformed all that it touched into old oak and silver bronze. I use the term silver bronze because I can think of no other combination to express that peculiar bronzy tarnish, like silver that has lain covered for a time which the moonlight in the tropics gives to the near objects upon which it falls, tarnished silver surfaces and deep sepia-tinted shadows. I felt the weird influence of that curse even as I crawled into the gully that led to it. A shiver ran over me as one feels when they say some stranger is passing over your future grave. A chill gripped at my vitals as I glanced about me apprehensively expectant of something ghoulish and unnatural to come upon me from the sepulchral gloom and mystery of the overhanging boulders under which I was dragging my wearied limbs. A deathly silence brooded within this rut-like and treeless gully that formed the only passage from the arid desert over which I had struggled, famishing and desperate, where it led to, I neither knew nor cared, so that it did not end in a cul-de-sac. At last, I came to what I least expected to see in that bar, a house of two stories, with the double gables facing me, as it stood on a mound in front of a waterhole, the mellow full moon behind the shingly roof, and glittering whitely as it repeated itself in the still water against the inky blackness of the reflections cast by the denser masses of the house and vegetation about it. It seemed to me to be a wooden erection, such as squatters first raise for their homesteads after they have decided to stay, the intermediate kind of station, which takes the place of the temporary shanty while the proprietor's bank account is rapidly swelling and his children are being educated in the city boarding schools to know their own social importance. By and by, when he is out of the mortgagee's hands, he may discard this comfortable house as he had done his shanty and go in for stateliness and stonework. But to the tramp or the bushranger, the present house is the most welcome sight 
for promises to the one shelter and to the other a prospect of loot. There was a veranda around the basement that stood clear above the earth on piles with a broad ladder stair leading down to the garden walk which terminated at the edge of the pool or waterhole. Under the iron roofing of the veranda, I could make out the vague indications of French doors that led to the reception rooms, etc., while above them were bedroom windows, all dark with the exception of one of the upper windows, the second one from the gable, through which a pale greenish light streamed faintly. Behind the house, or rather from the center of it, as I afterwards found out, projected a gigantic and lifeless gum tree, which spread its fantastic limbs and branches wildly over the roof, and behind that, again a mass of chaotic and planted greenery, all softened and generalized in the thin silvery mist which emanated from the pool and hovered over the ground. At the first glance, it appeared to be the abode of a romantic owner who had fixed upon a picturesque site and afterwards devoted himself to making it comfortable as well as beautiful. He had planted creepers and trained them over the walls. Passion fruit and vines hung closely to the posts and trellis work and broke the square outlines of windows and angles. A wild tangle of shrubs and flowers covered the mound in front and trailed into the water without much order, so that it looked like the abode of an imaginative poet rather than the station of a practical, money-grubbing squatter. As I quitted the desolate and rock-bound gully and entered upon this romantic domain, I could not help admiring the artful manner in which the owner had left nature alone where he could do so. The gum trees which he had found there were still left, as they must have been for ages. Great trees shooting up hundreds of feet into the air, some of them gaunt and bald with time, others with their leafage still in flourishing condition, while the more youthful trees were springing out of the fertile soil in all directions, giving the approach and appearance of an English park, particularly with the heavy night dew that glistened over them but the chill was still upon me that had gripped me at the entrance of the gully, and the same silence brooded over the house, garden, pool, and forest, which had awed me amongst the boulders, so that as I paused at the edge of the water and regarded the house, I again shuddered as if the specters were round me, and murmured to myself, Yes, it looks like a place upon which has fallen a curse. Two years before this night, I had been tried and condemned to death for murder. The murder of the one I loved best on earth. Through the energy of the press and intercession of a number of influential friends, my sentence had been mercifully commuted to transportation for life in Western Australia. The victim, whom I was proved by circumstantial evidence to have murder, was my young wife to whom I had been married only six months before. Ours was a love match, and until I saw her lying stark before me, those six months had been an uninterrupted honeymoon, without a cloud to cross it, 
a brief term of heaven, which accentuated the after-misery. I was a medical practitioner in a small country village which I need not name, as my supposed crime rang through England. My practice was new but growing, so that, although not too well off, we were fairly comfortable as to position, and as my wife was modest in her desires, we were more than contented with our lot. I suppose the evidence was strong enough to place my guilt beyond a doubt to those who could not read my heart and the heart of the woman I loved more than life. She had not been very well of late. Yeah, as it was nothing serious, I attended her myself. Then the end came with appalling suddenness. A post-mortem examination proved that she had been poisoned and that the drug had been taken from my surgery by whom or for what reason is still a mystery to me, for I do not think that I had an enemy in the world, nor do I think my poor darling had one either. At the time of my sentence, I had only one wish, and that was to join the victim of this mysterious crime, so that I saw the judge put on a fatal black cap with a feeling of pleasure, but when afterwards I heard it was to be transportation instead, and I flung myself down in my cell and hurled imprecations on those officious friends who had given me slavery and misery instead of release. Where was the mercy in letting me have life, since all had been taken from it, which had made it so worth holding? The woman who had lain in my arms while together, we built up glowing pictures of an impossible future, my good name lost, my place amongst men destroyed. Henceforward, I would be only recognized by number. My companions, the vilest, my days dragged out in chains until the degradation of my lot encrusted over that previous memory of tenderness and fidelity, and I grew to be like the other numbered felons, a mindless and emotional animal. Fortunately, at this point of my sufferings, oblivion came in the form of delirium, so that the weeks passed in a dream, during which my lost wife lived once more with me as we had been in the past. By the time the ship's doctor pronounced me recovered, we were within a few days of our dreary destination. Then my wife went from me to her own place, and I woke up to find that I had made some friends amongst my fellow convicts who had taken care of me during my insanity. We landed at Fremantle and began our life road-making. That is, each morning we were driven out of the prison like cattle, chained together in groups, and kept in the open until sundown, when we were once more driven back to sleep. For fourteen months, this dull monotony of eating, working, and sleeping went on without variation, and then the chance came that I had been hungering for all along. Not that liberty was likely to do me much good, only that the hope of accomplishing it kept me alive. Three of us made a run for it one afternoon, just before the gun sounded for our recall, while the rest of the gang 
being in our confidence, covered our escape until we had got beyond gunshot distance. We had managed to file through the chain which linked us together, and we ran towards the bush with the broken pieces in our hands as weapons of defense. My two comrades were desperate criminals, who, like myself, had been sentenced for life and as they confessed themselves, were ready to commit any atrocity rather than be caught and taken back. That night and the next day, we walked in a straight line about forty miles through the bush, and then, being hungry and tired, and considering ourselves fairly safe, we lay down to sleep without any thought of keeping watch. But we had reckoned too confidently upon our escape, for about daybreak the next morning, we were roused up by the sound of galloping horses, and springing to our feet and climbing a gum tree, we saw a dozen of mounted police, led by two trackers, coming straight in our direction. Under the circumstances, there were but two things left for us to do, either to wait until they came and caught us, or run for it until we were beaten or shot down. One of my companions decided to wait and be taken back, in spite of his bravado the night before. An empty stomach demoralizes most men. The other one made up his mind, as I did, to run as long as we could. We started in different directions, leaving our mate sitting under the gum tree, he promising to keep them off our track as long as possible. The fact of him being there when the police arrived gave us a good start. I put all my speed out and dashed along until I had covered, I dare say, about a couple of miles, when all at once the scrub came to an end, and before me I saw an open space with another stretch of bush about half a mile distant and no shelter between me and it. As I stood for a few minutes to recover my breath, I heard two or three shots fired to the right, the direction my companion had taken, and on looking that way, I saw that he also had gained the open and was followed by one of the trackers and a couple of the police. He was still running, but I could see that he was wounded from the way he went. Another shot was sent after him that went straight to its mark. For all at once, he threw up his arms and fell prone upon his face. Then, hearing the sounds of pursuit in my direction, I waited no longer, but bounded full into the morning sunlight, hoping as I ran that I might be as lucky as he had been and get a bullet between my shoulders and so end my troubles. I knew that they had seen me and were after me almost as soon as I had left the cover for I could hear them shouting for me to stop, as well as the clatter of their horses' hooves on the hard soil. But still, I kept to my course, waiting upon the shots to sound which would terminate my wretched existence, my back nerves quivering in anticipation, my teeth meeting in my underlip. One. Two. Two reports sounded in my ears, a second after the bullets had whistled past my head. And then, before the third and fourth reports came, 
Something like hot iron touched me above my left elbow, while the other bullet whirred past me with a singing wail, cooling my cheek with the wind it raised. And then I saw it ricochet in front of me on the hillside, for I was going up a slight rise at the time. I had no pain in my arm, although I knew that my humerus was splintered by that third last shot. But I put on a final spurt in order to tempt them to fire again. What were they doing? I glanced over my shoulder as I rushed and saw that they were spreading out, fan-like, and riding like fury while they hurriedly reloaded. Once more they were taking aim at me, and then I looked again in front. Before me yawned a gull, a depth of which I could not yet estimate, yet in width it was over a hundred feet. My pursuers had seen this impediment also, for they were reining up their horses while they shouted to me, more frantically than ever, to stop. Why should I stop? flashed the thought across my mind as I neared the edge. Since their bullets had denied me the death I courted, why should I pause at the death spread out before me so opportunely? As the question flashed through me, I answered it by making the leap, and as I went down, I could hear the reports of the rifles above me. Down into the shadow from the sun glare I dropped, the outer branches of a tree breaking with me as I fell through them. Another obstacle caught me a little lower and gave way under my weight, and then with an awful wrench that nearly stunned me, I felt myself hanging by the remnant of the chain which was still riveted to my waistband, about ten feet from the surface, with a hundred fifty feet of drop below me before I could reach the bottom. The chain had somehow gotten tangled in a fork of the last tree through which I had broken. Although that sudden wrench was excruciating, the exigency of my position compelled me to collect my faculties without loss of time. Perhaps my months of serfdom and intercourse with felons had blunted my sensibility and rendered me more callous to danger and bodily pain than I had been in my former and happier days, or the excitement of that terrible chase was still surging within me. For, without more than a second's pause, and an almost indifferent glance toward those distant boulders, I made a wild clutch with my unwounded arm at the branch which had caught me, and with an effort drew myself up to it, so that the next instant I was astride it, or rather crouching, where my loose chain had been caught. Then, once more secure, I looked upwards to where I expected my hunters to appear. When I think upon it now, it was a marvel how I ever got to be placed where I was, for I was under the shelving ledge from which I had left. That is, it spread over me like a roof. Therefore I must conclude that the first tier of branches must have bent inwards and so landed me on the second tree at a slant. At least, this is the only way in which I can account for my position. The tree on which I sat grew from a crevice on the side of the precipice, 
and from the top could not be seen by those above. Neither could I see them, although they looked down after me, but I can hear them plainly enough in what they said. That fellow has gone right enough, Jack, although I don't see his remains below. Shall we try to get down and make sure? I heard one say, while the other replied. What's the good of wasting time? He's as dead as the other chap. After that drop, and they will both be picked clean enough. So let us get back to Fremantle with a living one and report the other two as wiped out. We have a long enough journey before us, Sergeant. Yes, I suppose so, answered the Sergeant. Well, boys, we may say that there are two promising bushrangers, the less for this colony to support. So right about, home's the word. I heard their horses wheel round and go off at a canter after this final speech, and then I was left alone on my airy perch to plan out how best I was to get down with my broken arm, for it was impossible to get up, and also what I was likely to do with my liberty in that desolate region. Desperate men are not very particular about the risk they run, and I ran not a few before I finally reached the bottom of that gulch. Risky drops from one ledge to another. Frantic clutchings at branches and tree roots. Sufficient that I did reach the level ground at last, more nearly dead than alive, so that I was fain to lie under the shadow of the boulder for hours without making an effort to rise and continue my journey. Then, night was approaching. I dragged myself along until I came to some water, where, after drinking and bracing up my broken arm with a few gum trunk shards and binding them round with some native grasses, while I made my supper of the young leaves of the eucalyptus bushes, I went on. On and on, on for weeks, until I had lost all count of time, I wandered, carrying my broken fetters with me, and my broken arm gradually mending of its own accord. Sometimes I killed a snake or an iguana during the day with the branch I used for a stick, or a possum or wildcat at night, which I devoured raw. Often I existed for days on grass roots or the leaves of the gum tree, for anything was good enough to fill up the gap. My convict garb was in tatters and my feet bootless by this time, and my hair and beard hung over my shoulders and chest, while often I went for days in a semi-conscious state, for the fierce sun seemed to wither up my blood and set fire to my brain. Where I was going, I could not tell, and still, with all the privation and misery, the love of life was once again stronger in me than it had been since I lost my place amongst civilized men, for I was at liberty and alone to indulge in fancy. And yet it did not seem altogether fancy that my lost wife was with me on that journey. At first, she came only when I lay down to sleep, but after a time she walked with me hand in hand during the day, as well as in my dreams. Dora was her name, and soon I forgot that she had been dead, 
for she was living and beautiful as ever we went along together. Day after day, speaking to each other like lovers as we used to speak, and she did not seem to mind my ragged, degraded costume or my dirty, tangled beard, but caressed me with the same tenderness as of yore. Through the bush, down lonely gullies, over bitter deserts and salt marshes, we passed as happy and affectionate as fond lovers could be who are newly married and whom the world cannot part. My broken chain rattling as I staggered onwards while she smiled as if pleased with the music because it was the chain which I was wearing for her dear sake. Let me think for a moment. Was she with me through that last desert before I came to that gloomy gully? I cannot be quite sure of that. But this I do know, that she was not with me after all the chill shadows of the boulder drew me into them, and I was quite alone when I stood by the waterhole, looking upon that strange and silent house. It was singular that the house should be here at all in this far off and as yet unnamed portion of Western Australia, for I naturally supposed that I had walked hundreds of miles since leaving the convict settlement, and as I encountered no one, not even a single tribe of wandering folks, it seemed impossible to believe that I was not the first man who penetrated so far. And yet there it loomed before me, substantial looking in its masses, with painted weatherboards, shingles, iron sheeting, carved posts and trellis work, French windows, and the signs of cultivation about it, although bearing the traces of late neglect. Was it inhabited? I next asked myself, as I looked steadily at that dimly illumined window. Seemingly it was, for as I mentally asked the question, the darkness blotted out the light for a few moments and then moved slowly aside, while the faint pallor once more shone out. It appeared to be, from the distance, a window with a pale green blind drawn down, behind which a lamp turned low was burning, possibly for some invalid who was restlessly walking about while the rest of the household slept. Would it be well to rouse them up at this hour of night? I next queried as I paused, watching the chimney tops from which no wreath of smoke came. For although it did not seem late, judging from the height of the moon, yet it was only natural to suppose that in this isolated place the people would retire early. Perhaps it would be better to wait where I was till morning and see what they were like before I ventured to ask hospitality from them in my ragged yet unmistakably convict dress. I would rather go on as I was than run the risk of being dragged back to prison. How chilly the night vapors were which rose from this large pool, where it was more like the moat from some ancient ruin than an ordinary Australian waterhole. How ominous the shadows that gathered over this dwelling, in which even the great and lustrous moon, now clear of the gable end, seemed unable to dissipate 
and what a dismal effect that dimly burning lamp behind the pale green blind gave to it. I turned my eyes from the window to the pond from which the ghostly vapors were steaming upwards in such strange shapes. They crossed the reflections like gray shadows and floated over the white glitter which the moon cast down, like specters following each other in a stately procession, curling upwards interlaced while the gaunt trees behind them altered their shapes and looked demonic in their fantastic outlines, shadows passing along and sending doleful sighs, which I tried with all my might to think was the night breeze, but without succeeding. Hush, was that a laugh that wafted from the house, a low but blood-curdling cachination such as an exultant devil might utter who had witnessed his foul mischief accomplished, followed by the wail of a woman, intermixed with the cry of a child. Ah, what a fool I was to forget the cry of the Australian kingfisher. Of course that was it. Of course. Of course. But. The shapes are thickening over that mirror-like pool, and as I look, I see a woman with a chalk-white face and eyes distended in horror with a child in her hands, a little girl, and beside them the form of a man whose face changes into two different men, one the face of death and the other like that of a demon with glaring eyeballs while he points from the woman and child to the sleeping pool. What is the devil's specter pointing at as he laughs once more while the woman and child shrink with affright? The face that he himself wore a moment ago, the face of the dead man whom I can see floating amongst that silver luster. I must have fainted at the weird visions of the night before, or else I may have fallen asleep and dreamt them. For when I opened my eyes again, the morning sun was pouring over the landscape and all appeared changed. The pool was still there, but it looked like a natural Australian waterhole, which had been deepened and lengthened and artificially arranged by a tasteful proprietor to beautify his estate. Water lilies grew round the edges and spread themselves in graceful patches about. It was only in the center portion, where the moonlight had glinted and the other reflections cast themselves, that the water was clear of weeds, and there it still lay inky and dangerous light in its depth. Over the building itself clustered a perfect tangle of vegetable parasites, star of Bethlehem, maiden blush roses and gloire de Dijon, passion flowers and convolvus intermingling with a large grape-laden vine going to waste and hanging about half-wild, neglected festoons. A woman's hand had planted these tendrils, as well as the garden in front, for I could see that flowers predominated. As for the house itself, it still stood silent and deserted-looking. The weatherboards had shrunk a good deal with the heat 
of many suns beating upon them, while the paint, once tasteful in its varied tints, was bleached into dry powder. The trellis work also on the veranda had in many places been torn away by the weight of the clinging vines, and between the window frames and the windows yawned wide fissures where they had shrunk from each other. I looked round at the landscape, but could see no trace of sheep, cattle, nor humanity. It spread out a sunlit solitude where nature, for a little while trained to order, had once more asserted her independent lavishness. A little of my former awe came upon me as I stood for a few moments hesitating to advance, but at the sight of those luscious-looking bunches of grapes, which seemed to promise some fare more substantial inside, the dormant cravings for food which I had so long subdued came upon me with tenfold force, and without more than a slight tremor of superstitious dread, I hurriedly crushed my way through the tangle of vegetation and made for the veranda an open door of the hall. Delicious grapes they were, as I found, when, after tearing off a huge bunch and eating them greedily, I entered the silent hall and began my exploration. The dust and fine sand of many brickfielders, sandstorms, lay thickly on every object inside, so that as I walked, I left my footprints behind me as plainly as if I had been walking over snow. In the hall, I found a handsome stand and carved table with chairs. A hat and riding whip lay on the table, while on the rack I saw two or three coats and hats hanging, with sticks and umbrellas beneath, all white with dust. The dining room door stood ajar, and as I entered I could see that it also had been undisturbed for months, if not years. It had been handsomely furnished with artistic hangings and stuffed leather chairs and couches, while on the elaborately carved chauffeur was a plentiful supply of spirit and wine decanters with cut glasses standing ready for use. On the table stood a bottle of three-star brandy, half emptied, and by its side a water filter and glass as they had been left by the last year. I smelt the bottle and found that the contents were mellow and good. And when, after dusting the top, I put it to my mouth, I discovered that the bouquet was delicious. Then invigorated by that sip, I continued my voyage of discovery. The chiffonier was not locked, and inside I discovered rows of sealed bottles which satisfied me that I was not likely to run short of refreshments in the liquid form at any rate. So, content with this pleasant prospect, I ventured into the other apartments. The drawing room was like the room I had left, a picture of comfort and elegance, when once the accumulation of dust and sand had been removed. The library or a study came next, 
which I found in perfect order, although I left the details for a more leisurely examination. I next penetrated the kitchen, which I saw was comfortable, roomy, and well provided, although in more disorder than the other rooms. Pans stood rusting in the fireplace, dishes lay dirty, and an accumulated pile on the table, as if the servants had left in a hurry and the owners had been forced to make what shifts they could during their absence. Yet there was no lack of such provisions, as an upcountry station would be sure to lay in. The pantry I found stored like a provision shop, with flitches of bacon, hams soon canvas, tinned meats and soups of all kinds, with barrels and bags and boxes of flour, sugar, tea, and other sundries, enough to keep me going for years if I was lucky enough to be in possession. I next went upstairs to the bedrooms, up a thickly carpeted staircase with a white linen overcloth still upon it. In the first room, I found the bed with the bedclothes tumbled about as if the sleeper had lately left it. The master of the house, I suppose, as I examined the wardrobe and found it well stocked with male apparel. At last I could cast aside my degrading rags and fit myself out like a free man after I had visited the workshop and filed my fetters from me. Another door attracted me on the opposite side of the lobby, and this I opened with some considerable trepidation, because it led into the room which I had seen lighted up the night before. It seemed untenanted, as I looked in cautiously, and like the other bedroom, was in a tumble of confusion, a woman's room, for the dresses and underclothing were lying about, a bedroom which had been occupied by a woman and a child, for a crib stood in one corner, and on a chair lay the frock and other articles belonging to a little girl about five or six years of age. I looked at the window. It had Venetian blinds upon it, and they were drawn up so that my surmise had been wrong about the pale green blinds. But on the inside of the room was another window with the blinds also drawn up, and thus satisfied, I walked in boldly. What I had thought to be a light had only been the moonlight streaming from one window to the other, while the momentary blackening of the light had been caused, doubtless by the branches of the trees outside, moved forward by the night breeze. Yes, that must have been the cause, so that I had nothing to fear. The house was deserted, and my own property, for the time at least. There was a strange and musty odor in this bedroom, which blended with the perfume that the owner had used and made me for a moment almost giddy, so that the first thing I did was to open both windows and let in the morning air. After which, I looked over to the unmade bed, and then I staggered back with a cry of horror. There amongst the tumble of bedclothes lay the skeletons 
of what have been two human beings clad in embroidered nightdresses. One glance was enough to convince me, with my medical knowledge, that the gleaming bones were those of a woman and a child, the original wearers of those dresses which lay scattered about. What awful tragedy had taken place in this richly furnished but accursed house? Recovering myself, I examined the remains more particularly, but could find no clue. They were lying reposefully enough, with arms interlacing as if they had died or been done to death in their sleep. All those tiny anatomists, the ants, had found their way in and cleaned the bones completely, as they very soon do in this country. With a sick sensation at my heart, I continued my investigations throughout the other portions of the station. In the servants' quarters, I learned the cause of the unwashed dishes. Three skeletons lay on the floor with different positions as they had fallen, while their shattered skulls proved the cause of their end, even if the empty revolver that I picked up from the floor had not been evidence enough. Someone must have entered their rooms and woke them brutally from their sleep in the nighttime for they lay also in their own blood-stained nightdresses, and beside them, on the boards, were dried-up markings which were unmistakable. The rest of the house was as it had been left by the murderer or murderers. Three domestics, with their mistress and child, had been slaughtered, and then the guilty wretches had fled without disturbing anything else. It was once again night, and I was still in the house which my first impulse had been to leave with all haste after the gruesome discoveries I had made. But several potent reasons restrained me from yielding to that impulse. I had been wandering for months and living like a wild beast. While here I had everything to my hand which I needed to recruit my exhausted system. My curiosity was roused so that I wanted to penetrate the strange mystery if I could, so that I wanted to penetrate the strange mystery if I could, by hunting after and reading all the letters and papers I might be able to find, and to do this required leisure. Thirdly, as a medical practitioner who had passed through the anatomical schools, the presence of five skeletons did not have much effect upon me. And lastly, before sundown, the weather had broken, and one of those fierce storms of rain, wind, thunder, and lightning had come on, which utterly prevented anyone who had a chance of a roof to shelter him from turning out to the dangers of the night. These were some of my reasons for staying where I was, at least the reasons that I explained to myself. But there was another, and a more subtle motive which I could not logically explain and which yet influenced me more than any of the others. I could not leave the house, now that I had taken possession of it, or rather, if I may say it, now that the house had taken possession of me. I had lifted the bucket from the kitchen, and found my way to the draw well in the back garden, 
with the uncomfortable feeling that some unseen force was compelling me to stay here. I discovered a large file and freed myself from my fetters, and then, throwing my rags from me with disgust, I clad myself in one of the suits that I found in the wardrobe upstairs, and then I set to work dusting and sweeping out the dining room, after which I lit a fire, retrimmed the lamps, and cooked a substantial meal for myself. Then the storm coming on decided me, so that I spent the remainder of the afternoon making the place comfortable. And when darkness did come, I had drawn the blinds down and secured the shutters, and with a lighted lamp, a bottle of good wine, and a box of first-class cigars which I also found in the chiffonier, with a few volumes that I had taken from the bookshelves at random, and an album of photographs that I picked up from the drawing room table, I felt a different man from what I had been the night previous, particularly with that glowing log fire in the grate. I left the half-emptied bottle of brandy where I had found it on the table, with the used glass and water filter untouched, as I did also the chair that had been beside them. I had a repugnance to those articles which I could not overcome. The murderer had used them last, possibly as a reviver after his crimes, for by this time I had reasoned out that one hand only had been at work, and that man's the owner of the suit which I was then wearing, and which fitted me so exactly. Otherwise, why should the house have been left in the condition that it was? As I sat at the end of the table and smoked the cigar, I rebuilt the whole tragedy, although as yet the motive was not so clear. And as I thought the matter out, I turned over the leaves of the album and looked at the photographs. Before me, on the walls, hung three oil portraits. Enlargements they were, and as works of art vile things, yet doubtless they were faithful enough likenesses. In the album, I found three cabinet portraits from which the paintings had been enlarged. They were the portraits of a woman of about 26, a girl of five years and a man about 32. The woman was good looking, with fresh color, blue eyes and golden brown hair. The girl, evidently her daughter, for the likeness that was marked between the two, had one of those seraphic expressions which some delicate children have who are marked out for early death that places them above the plane of grosser humanity. She looked as she hung between the two portraits with her glory of golden hair like the garden angel of the woman who was smiling so contentedly and consciously from her gilded frame. The man was pallid-faced and dark, clean-shaven, all except the small black mustache with lips which except the artist had grossly exaggerated the color, were excessively and disagreeably vivid. Her eyes were deep-set and glowing as if with the glitter of a fever. 
These would be the likenesses of the woman and child whose skeletons lay unburied upstairs, and that pallid face, feverish-eyed Gould, the fiend who had murdered them, his wife and child. I murmured to myself as I watched the last portrait with morbid interest. Right and wrong, doctor, as you medical men mostly are, answered a deep voice from the other end of the table. I started with amazement and looked from the painting to the vacant chair beside the brandy bottle, which was now occupied by what appeared to be the original of the picture I had been looking at. Face, hair, vivid scarlet lips were identical, and the same deep-set fiery eyes which were fixed upon me intently and mockingly. How had he entered without my observing him? By the window? No, for that I had firmly closed and secured myself, and as I glanced at it, I saw that it still remained the same. By the door? Perhaps so, although he must have closed it again after he had entered without my hearing him, as he might easily have done during one of those claps of thunder which were now almost incessant as were the vivid flashes of wildfire or lightning that darted about while the rain lashed against the shutters outside. He was dripping wet, as I could see, so that he must have come from that deluge, bareheaded and dripping, with his hair and mustache draggling over his glistening ashy cheeks and bluish chin, as if he had been submerged in water, while weeds and slime hung about his saturated garments. A gruesome sight for a man who fancied himself alone to see start up all of a sudden. No wonder that it paralyzed me and prevented me from finding the words I wanted at the moment. Had he lain hidden somewhere watching me take possession of his premises, and being as solitary men sometimes are, fond of dramatic effect, slipped in while my back was turned from the door to give me a surprise? If so, he had succeeded, for I never before felt so craven-spirited or horror-stricken. My flesh was creeping, and my hair bristling, while my blood grew to ice within me. The very lamp seemed to turn dim, and the fire smoldered down on the hearth, while the air was chill as a charn vault as I sat with shivering limbs and chattering teeth before this evil visitor. Outside, the warring elements raged and fought, shaking the wooden walls while the forked flames darted between us, lighting up his face with a ghastly effect. He must have seen my horror, for he once more laughed that low, malicious chuckle that I had heard the night before as he again spoke. Make yourself at home, doctor, and try some of this cognac instead of that washy stuff you are drinking. I am only sorry that I cannot join you in it, but I cannot just yet. I found words at last and asked him questions, which seemed impertinent in the extreme, considering where I was. Who are you? 
Where do you come from? What do you want? Again, that hateful chuckle as he fixed his burning eyes upon me with a regard which fascinated me in spite of myself. Who am I, do you ask? Well, before you took possession of this place, I was its owner. Where do I come from? From out of there last. He pointed backwards towards the window, which burst open as he uttered the words, while through the driving rain a flash of lightning seemed to dart from his outstretched finger and disappear into the center of the lake. Then after that hurried glimpse, the shutters clashed together again, and we were as before. What do I want? You, for lack of a better. What do you want with me? I gasped. To make you myself. I do not understand you. What are you? At present, nothing. Yet with your help, I shall be a man once more, while you shall be free and rich, for you shall have more gold than you could ever dream of. What can I do for you? Listen to my story and you will see. Ten years ago I was a successful gold finder, the trusting husband of that woman and the fond father of that girl. I had likewise a friend whom I trusted and took to live with me as a partner. We lived here together, my friend, myself, my wife and my daughter, for I was romantic and had raised this house to be close to mine which I had discovered and which I shall show you if you consent to my terms. One night my friend murdered me and pitched my body into that waterhole where the bones still lie. He did this because he coveted my wife and my share of the money. I was calm now, but watchful, for it appeared that I had to deal with a madman. In my lifetime, I had been a trusting and guileless simpleton, but no sooner was my spirit set free than vengeance transformed its nature. I hovered about the place where all my affections had been centered, watching him beguile the woman who had been mine until he won her. She waited three years for me to return, and then she believed his story that I had been killed by natives and married him. They traveled to where you came from, to be married, and I followed them closely, for that was the chance I waited upon. The union of those two once accomplished, he was in my power forever, for this had established the link that was needed for me to take forcible possession of him. And where was his spirit meantime, I asked, to humor the maniac. In my grasp also, a spirit rendered impotent by murder and gratitude, a spirit which I could do with as I pleased, so long as the wish I had was evil. I took possession of his body, the mirage of which you see now, and from that moment until the hour that our daughter was rescued from his clutches, he made the life of my former wife a hell on earth. I prompted his murderer and brood spirit 
to madness, leaving him only long enough to himself after I had braced him up to do the deed of vengeance. How did the daughter save the mother? By dying with her, and by her own purity tearing the freed spirit from my clutches. I did not intend the animal to do all that he did, for I wanted the mother only. But once the murder lust was on him, I found that he was beyond my influence. He slew the two by poison as he had done me, then frenzied, he murdered the servants, and finally exterminated himself by flinging himself into the pool. That was why I said that I came last from out of there, where both my own remains and his lie together. Yes, and what is my share in this business? To look on me passively for a few moments, as you are at present doing, that is all I require. I do not believe his story about his being only a mirage or a specter, for he appeared at this moment corporal enough to do me a considerable amount of bodily harm, and therefore to humor him, until I could plan a way to overpower him and fix my eyes upon his steadfastly, as he desired. Was I falling asleep? or being mesmerized by this homicidal lunatic. As he glared at me with those fiery orbs and an evil contortion curling the blood-red lips while the forked lightning played around him, I became helpless. He was creeping slowly towards me as a cat might steal upon a mouse, and I was unable to move or take my eyes from his eyes which seemed to be charming my lifeblood from me when suddenly I heard the distant sound of music through a lull of the tempest, the rippling of a piano from the drawing room with the mingling of a child's silvery voice as it sang its evening hymn. And at the sound, his eyes shifted while he fell back a step or two, with an agonized spasm crossing his ghastly and dripping wet face. Then the hurricane broke loose once more, with a resistless fury, while the door and window burst open and the shutters were dashed into the room. I leapt to my feet in a paroxysm of horror and sprang towards the open door with that demon or maniac behind me. Merciful heavens, the drawing room was brilliantly lighted up and there, seated at the open piano, was the woman whose bones I had seen bleaching upstairs, with the seraphic-faced child singing her hymn. Out to the tempest I rushed madly, and heedless of where I went, so that I escaped from that accursed and haunted house, on, past the waterhole, and into the glade, where I turned my head back instinctively, as I heard a wilder roar of thunder, and the crash as if a tree had been struck. What a flash that was which lighted up the scene and showed me the house collapsing as an erection of cards. They went down like an avalanche before that zigzag flame, which seemed to lick round it for a moment and then disappear into the earth. 
Next instant, I was thrown off my feet by the earthquake that shook the ground under me. While as I still looked on where the house had been, I saw that the ruin had caught fire and was blazing up in spite of the torrents that still poured down. And as it burned, I saw the mound sink slowly out of sight, while the reddened smoke eddied about in the same strange shapes which the vapors had assumed the night before, scarlet ghosts of the demon and his victims. Two months after this, I woke up to find myself in a Queensland backcountry station. They had found me wandering in a delirious condition over one of their distant runs six weeks before my return to consciousness. And as they could not believe that a pedestrian without provisions could get over that unknown stretch of country from Fremantle, they paid no attention to my ravings about being an escaped convict, particularly as the rags I had on could never have been prison-made. Learning, however, that I had medical knowledge by the simple method of putting it to the test, my good rescuer set me up in my old profession, where I still remain, a Queensland backcountry doctor. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.